Thanks for listening to Gamblers. If you like this show, you might also like some of The Ringer's other narrative offerings, like Book of Wrestling, a show about the attitude era of professional wrestling, or What If, The Lynn Bias Story, a series about the death of a young basketball star and how his legacy reached much further than the basketball court. Or maybe you'd like one of our culture narrative shows, like Just Like Us, which examines the tabloid era from Benifer to Brangelina. Now let's get to gambling. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Unable to swing. You can play by the hole, but I'm not playing a thousand a hole. What are you? If, if there's podcasting, it has to double. That's double yeah, that's right. At least double. At least. You can't have him out here playing a thousand a fucking hole. I'm at a private golf course in Las Vegas called TPC Summerlin. It's home to the Shriners Children's Open, a PGA event. It's in the middle of the desert. But like a lot of things in Vegas, it's lush, well manicured, and most days features a lot of money changing hands. The wind today, however, is out of control. Not ideal for a round of golf, or recording a podcast for that matter. But these folks I'm with, they won't be deterred. They intend to play. The wind, a minor factor in their negotiations over what they'll be betting on the match. Bet! There you go. <laughs> 3,000 a hole. What are we doing? 3,000 a hole. Now two. The group I'm with is made up of professional gamblers, some of them the best in the world, including poker players Jennifer Harmon, Eric Wasserman, MJ Gonzalez, and Eric Sagstrom. But the man they've built the game around, a man who has dueled on the course with everyone from Phil Ivey to Jerry Buss to PGA pros, is a 69-year-old named Richie Sklar. He's a really good golfer. Really good. I mean, scrambling his own ball, I think he's a favorite. But his back's hurt, or his hip is hurt, or something. Yeah. So he's easy money today. Is he easy money? No, Richie's never easy money. Richie is older than this crowd, and he's currently nursing some injuries that make it difficult for him to swing. Still, despite all of their bluster, nobody wants to play him unless he gives them some weight, some kind of advantage. That's because unlike the rest of them, Richie Sklar is as great a golfer as he is a gambler. Oh, that one's George. 
In fact, great is really understating it. For much of the last 20 years, Richie Sklar has been the most feared golfer in the city of Las Vegas. Not because he's a scratch golfer or was a plus three at his peak. There's plenty of sticks around Vegas. He's feared because while these other players all made their millions playing poker, Richie made his millions right here on this golf course. Not from sponsorships or tournament prizes or anything like that. Richie Sklar made millions of dollars the same way he's trying to make money today, by gambling with rich people. This is the story of Richie Sklar, one of the greatest golf hustlers that ever lived. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, my name is David Hill, and this is Gamblers. Right now? Yes. This hole? Yes. Yeah, bet. No, I want to play bigger too. This is too small. Yeah, fucking this is hole. Seriously. What are we I'm even not- doing? They have trouble agreeing to a game because Richie, who usually has to give up a lot of weight to the others, is saying he's injured, and today he's the one asking for weight. Of course, people would naturally be suspicious that Richie is trying to hustle them, so he takes off his shirt to prove it and show them the extent of the bruising up and down his rib cage. You and me even? We can play as high as you want, and I'm completely... Here, look. From the shots? They eventually agree to a three-team scramble with Richie on a team by himself scrambling his own ball, meaning that after every shot, the other teams get to choose which of their teammates' balls to play, while Richie can hit twice and choose the best of his two. That's a huge advantage for Richie. He told me it's worth the equivalent of six strokes over nine holes. But the others are eager to gamble. That is, after all, what they do for a living. What are they going to do, play for fun? And the stakes aren't particularly high for them, so fuck it. Maybe Richie really is hurt. And anyway, who can really say what will happen out here with all this goddamn wind? That's in. That's in. Hello. (laughs) I thought it was in for sure, and it stopped on the lip. The wind just held it and actually pushed it back. That was sick. At $2,000 a hole, Richie is playing the other four players by himself, which means he can lose up to $4,000 a hole. But he can also win that much. To him, this is a friendly game. He's not feeling 100%, so he's fine with the lower stakes. But he's used to playing for much, much more in some of the biggest golf money games Las Vegas has ever seen. But Richie's life hasn't always been like this. In fact, despite exhibiting a real gift for the game in his teenage years, he didn't really play seriously until much later in his life. And despite being an upstanding citizen in Las Vegas, with credit at every casino, acclamations from U.S. senators hanging on his walls and photos of himself with sitting presidents, he's a long, long way from where he started. And the path to get here was as wild as the wind out here on the course today. Richie was born in Los Angeles in the 1950s, where he grew up hustling from a very young age and started making moves on Ventura Boulevard. For instance, they had these paper machines. You put in a dime at the top and you lift the thing and take out a paper. I figured out a way how to rig the paper machines where all the dimes would drop down, but I put a little piece of cardboard in it and all the dimes would drop and they'd stay on this piece of cardboard. And at nighttime, I'd go 
put another dime in and open it and scoop them out. That was at 10 years old. Richie's cunning helped him earn a few bucks, but it also protected him. Like the saying goes, the strong prey on the weak, but the clever prey on the strong. I was 13, and I'm going to this new school. I don't know one person. And I'm sitting in this chair. There's these rows of chairs, and from behind me, I hear this kid saying, hey, wimp. So I turn, look back, and he's looking right at me. He says, points at me, yeah, you, hey, wimp. Two hours later, we had recess, and I see a bunch of kids in, on this grass at recess in groups of three flipping quarters where odd man wins. The way the game worked was this. Because the teachers would get mad if they saw them flipping quarters, the kids would put the quarters in their closed hands behind their backs, then reveal them all at once. If all the quarters were the same side up, they win again. If not, odd quarter would take the other two. They're gambling at 13. I, I can't even believe what I'm seeing. So I waited till recess was over and I followed the little kid that was in the group with him. I asked him, how did you do? And he says, he always loses. So I said, how would you like to always win? And he said, of course I'd like to always win. Richie would signal to his partner what side he was putting up each time. And the other kid would put up the opposite, ensuring that one of them would always win the third kid's quarter. Then they'd split the money later after school. Within, I would say, three weeks, there was no more flipping quarters. We beat everybody out of all their quarters. None of the kids had money left. These types of scams were thrilling for Richie because he liked outsmarting the system. But he also liked having money. As a teenager, his younger brother offered him a chance to make an easy buck, something Richie was always on the lookout for. And the job would introduce him to the game that would one day change his life. He shows me he just made $20. I said, how? He said, the golf course a mile up the street, and I was looking for golf balls that were lost in the heavy rough. He would find them and sell them back to the golfers. I jumped out of that bed so fast to take me, show me, and I made about $20 a day for a week, which is a lot of money in 68 for a 15-year-old. So after a week, I wanted to try a different part of the golf course because I've already like, you know, went through the five or six holes and I ended up at the clubhouse. And then I saw all these people on the driving range hitting balls. And I said, shit, I want to try that. Richie went into the pro shop and they sold him a bucket of balls for a quarter and loaned him a three wood. I'm hitting it way farther than all these other people. So I hit balls every day for two weeks. I worked and looked for balls. I went up and had a hot dog and hit balls every day for two weeks. And now I, I'm playing and I shot 40 for the nine holes where par 36. I didn't try to gamble or anything. These guys started laughing and said, yeah, this is your first time playing, sure. I said, it is, I'm telling you, I've never played before. A year and a half later, I was number one in the city of L.A., which is pretty good. Yeah, Richie was pretty good, but he had no idea how good. Not yet, anyway. 
I see a ball short, too. Back at TPC Summerlin, the game started off slow for Richie. There it is. Hey, diddle diddle, right down there. That one's George. George is an old-school gambling term. It's always been used for someone who's a big tipper or generous with their money. George, in this case, referring to George Washington on dollar bills. To Richie, the whole world is broken up into two types of people, people who are George and people who are stiffs. If he likes someone or something, he will bestow upon that person or thing the title of George. And his companions here on the golf course, they all love it. And every great shot is George. That one got out. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? George. Oh, George. Oh, he's angry now. Today, however, very few of Richie's shots are George. And after three holes, he's already feeling the pressure. I went bogey, par, bogey on the first three holes. And normally I'm like one under par for those three holes at the worst, usually two under for those three. Every time I swam, I can't swing. Back in 1970, when Richie was on the golf team at Granada Hills High School, it's hard to know what he would have been more shocked to learn about his future self. That he's complaining about not birdieing every hole or that he's only playing for thousands of dollars a hole. Back then, Richie was the top player on the school's team and one of the top high school players in the city. So his talent was evident, but his heart wasn't fully in the game. His true passion back then was the racetrack. So in the summer of 70, when I was 17, a friend of mine, Steve said, let's go to Hollywood Park Racetrack. I said, okay, let's go. And on Saturday in the second to last race, I bet $50 to win, and that horse won at 11 to 1, and I got 600. 600 when you're 17 in 1970 is truly like 10,000 now. It was like, I brought it home and showed my dad that I won 600. He just couldn't even talk. That was like what he made in two weeks. Richie loved being at the racetrack so much, he considered dropping out of high school so he could spend more time there. But his golf coach begged him to stay. I told him, the only way I'm going to stay is I'm going to make the schedule and I'm not coming to school. If you can get it done, it's great. If you can't get it done, I'm not coming. So he got it done where I only had to go to first period. And then second and third period was wood shop, which I made a deal with the teacher because he liked the horses and... We've maneuvered it. He'd attend one period, then hit golf balls until the racetrack opened. And he did this until he graduated. Richie liked math, and he liked golf, but he didn't like school. Still, he was good enough at golf that colleges were willing to see past his disinterest in academics. I had a golf scholarship to USC, and I went the first day. After five minutes, I just left, and I never went back. This was the 1970s. And horse racing wasn't the American pastime it had been in the 1940s and 50s. People in Richie's family, his friends, they worried about him hanging out at the racetrack. No, they thought I was sick, for sure. But Richie was getting a different kind of education at the racetrack. He was studying not only the horses, but the people, the gamblers who populated the grandstands. Because Richie figured early on that in order to stay in action at the track, 
he'd need to develop a hustle, a way to use his people skills to his advantage. I would like sell myself. I would talk a little louder so Joe Blow could hear me. I was like hustling them, but they didn't know it. And eventually a lot of people start coming to me. Who do I like this? You know, mark my program, mark my card for the whole day. Which, how should I bet? And many people- He cultivated an image of a big winner and people gravitated to him to try to get him to help them win. And he obliged them, but it wasn't out of altruism. He had an angle. I didn't charge them. They would give me a percent of what they won with a makeup figure. So we'd keep track. A makeup figure just means that if Richie's picks lost, he'd have to make back that money with winning picks before he could start collecting a percentage again. He'd only get paid if the client was winning. By building a list of clients this way, Richie knew that he could always stay in action at the track, even if he himself went broke. So naturally, he started playing faster and looser with his own money, trying to hit a big score. I remember one night at Los Alamitos Quarter Horses. I'm going to say this was in the late 70s. I had $10 in my pocket. Ten! Nobody was there. It was quiet. There was three races left. I bet $10 on some exacta and got like $80. Then I bet $80 on something next race and got $500. And then there was one race left and I bet the 500 and got 6,000 back. 12 to one odds, right? Nobody bets like that then. I did it different. It all played. Out on the golf course at TPC Summerlin, Richie and the other players were letting their rivalries spill into the other arena they all did battle, the card table. I want to beat Richie out of this fucking house. Learn how to play pan, you can win all the money oh, you want. But they aren't arguing about playing poker. Instead, it's a rummy-like game played with a 320-card deck that originated in the Philippines and was incredibly popular in California in the 70s. The game is called pan. Not many people know about it. Pan is short for pan game. In the 1970s, California card rooms were only allowed to offer three games, low ball, draw poker, and pan. I learned how to play it, and I saw how bad the people played, and I learned more and more quickly, and by far became the best player. To this day, I will play anybody in the world heads up pan for any amount of money. Richie isn't bullshitting about willing to play for any amount of money. Out at the golf course in Summerlin, he was ready to back up the truck to play MJ heads up for a million dollars. And I haven't had a game in 15 years. No one will play me. One reason Pan stood out to Richie, it was a game that appealed to his inner hustler. Because in addition to being a skill game, it had some unusual conventions. Can't cheat. You have to cheat. You have to cheat, right? What is this cheat? In Pan, if you throw an extra card away because you forgot to at one point, that's legal. If the person says you threw two cards away instead of one, you have to say, yes, I did, and throw your hand away and pay back off. So it's not cheating, it's part of the game of Pan. Did I ever cheat in Pan? Yes. When I first started playing, they didn't have dealers, and one guy showed me a little move to give you a small percentage. The basic gist of the move was that whenever it was Richie's turn to shuffle the cards for the next deal, he would drop three extra cards onto his hand when nobody was looking. 
So I'd have 13 and quickly look at my cards and then take three other cards and just grab them with this hand and push them in the next discards. So that small edge was enough to, to make me win almost all the time. It's very simple. We play a day of pan, a day of no limit why, holder. Why are you guys still talking pan, about this? Yeah. Day of no limit holder. That's too much play for me. There's a, there's a chance we don't even play golf today, let alone you guys play pan. Back in the late 70s, Richie was only playing for around $20 a hand. And on a good day, he'd make four or $500. That money meant a lot to his survival. And by survival, I mean it helped to grow his racetrack bankroll. In 1978, however, new city ordinances led to many pan rooms being shuttered. And Richie turned back to the racetrack, looking for a new angle. It started in 1979. Hollywood Park had the first pick six. The pick six was a new bet they offered where you tried to pick the winner of six consecutive races. It was a lot like the lottery. Everyone who correctly picked six winners would split the whole thing. If you were the only one who had all six, you'd get the entire pot to yourself. The bet produced huge payoffs. I remember a friend of mine hit the first big pick six for, in 1980 when it just started for 200000 But the bet was incredibly difficult to win, and it required a large investment in order to cover multiple horses in each race. I figured out other ways when people were alive after two or three winners, how to buy percentages of their tickets. Nobody ever heard of buying, selling, trading pick sixes. I invented it. Richie figured they'd be happy to give up a piece of that payday in exchange for a small guaranteed profit right now. After all, it's far more likely that they lose than they win. Everybody loved it. The word got around to the, the everyday people. If you're alive in the pick six, go see Richie if you want to sell a piece. He'd do all this wheeling and dealing in the 20 minutes between races. Running from floor to floor, finding buyers and sellers, bringing deals together, and taking his own piece off the top. A true hustler in every sense of the word. Richie leveraged everything he had to make money. Charm, street smarts, horse sense, a knack for math, and quick feet. But all of this never added up to a big enough score for him. And he wanted more than a piece of someone else's winning ticket. He wanted one all to himself. So, he did what any red-blooded American capitalist does when they want to try to strike it rich. He borrowed money. A lot of it. And not from the bank, either. Somehow, we got introduced to a guy who would loan money. And it was ridiculous. He'd loan money at 4% a week. Crazy. Richie owed about $30,000, with $1,200 in big due every week. He only had $2,000 left, so naturally, he took it to the racetrack, to Los Alamitos. And he bet it all on the pick six. And miraculously, he won. And I took that money, and I came back with it to my two friends. I said, I won like 30-something thousand. Right away, my two friends are saying, oh, good, we'll pay, pay the guy all the money we owe and pay all this bill and that bill. I said, we're not paying a penny. We need to win something. We're going to Santa Anita tomorrow, and we're going to gamble. Richie went to the track the very next day and made another $2,000 pick six ticket. And he won. Again. Impossible, impossible, impossible. So I went from zero money the night before to 128000 the next day. Now 
we took the money back to our apartment and paid all the money off we needed. And then the next day, well, you can probably guess what Richie did. We put in a pick six and had the only five. Nobody had six. We had the only ticket with five and got a hundred and eight thousand. So now we actually have some money. So I gave them some, them some, and I had, when the smoke cleared, I might add 80,000. That was a lot of money then. Word got around the racetrack that Richie Sklar had come into some serious money. And when someone like Richie comes into a lot of money, people in the gambling world come knocking. Some looking for a loan, some looking for a handout, and some with bona fide business opportunities. And at that time, somebody from the racetrack world, a harness driver who I knew, heard that I did well and called me up and said, let's start making some money. And that's how I got into fixing races. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. No, I want to play bigger too. This is too small. Yeah, I'm fucking just this whole. Seriously. What are we I'm even not, doing? I'm not. Out at TPC Summerlin, there was blood in the water. Richie wasn't playing like his usual self, so there was a lot of gum bumping about raising the stakes. But rather than shirt, Richie jumped on the opportunity. We're up four, yeah? That's all. Want, want to bet more? Yeah. Fuck it. Why not? Perhaps Richie was eager to raise the stakes because he knew he had to dig himself out of a hole. Or perhaps he did it simply because he loves to gamble. But there's also the possibility. That was like Richie of age 65. I think his hip just healed itself on the last hole. With a guy like Richie, one can never be too sure they aren't being hustled. Richie was responsible for fixing hundreds of horse races in California through the 1980s. The big-time golf hustler was once an even bigger race fixer. And it all started in 1983 after he won his first big pick six ticket, and a harness racing jockey approached him about cutting him in on some small-time stuff. Harness racing is horse racing among standard bred horses who have shorter legs and run at much slower paces than thoroughbreds, and they pull jockeys or drivers behind them in harness carriages. 
The races tend to have much smaller purses than thoroughbred races, with winning drivers earning only 5 to 10% of the purses. The driver who approached Richie was known to offer to throw races by holding back horses, which he and other drivers would do sometimes for as little as $500. At these Southern California racetracks in the early 80s, where the fix was in, there was more money for drivers in losing than winning. Well, that's how you win. You box up three or four horses, and then you, and then you key one with them, and you have a big, much bigger edge. Richie always knew the fix was in on some races, but until then, he didn't know how to get in on it. Now he had a jockey wanting to go to work for him, and Richie knew right away that he could make a bundle. Because even though he could never know for sure who would win a race, just knowing one horse that definitely would not win a race gave him a big edge, especially if that horse was one of the betting favorites. But harness racing wasn't that big, and the pools of money weren't either. So there was a ceiling to how much Richie could earn with the scam. After the harness meet finished at Los Alamitos, the quarter horse meet began. Quarter horses are like the kind of horses you'd see at the rodeo or working on a ranch, but they're extremely fast at short distances. And in the 80s, quarter horse races had much bigger betting pools than harness races. The problem was, because there was more money at stake, there was more scrutiny over potential cheating. Not only that, Richie didn't know any quarter horse jockeys, but he had a plan for that. He went to where the number one quarter horse jockey hung out. I sit at the bar there, and I get where he can hear me talking to the bartender. Let me have a program for tonight's harness races. And he says to me, do you do any good at that harness racing? He says, you got anything good for me I can make a bet on tonight? Richie always had something. So he gave the jockey a tip on one of the races he had fixed, and it won. And then he gave him another tip and another, and another. Day after day, 11 in a row, all winners. He says, you must know something. And I said to him, well, here, I said, here's what I know. I know if you're interested in making a lot of money when the quarter horses start next month, I'll show you how. I said, are you interested? He said, I sure am. And he said these words to me. I have enough wind pictures on my wall. I need money. I said, that's music to my ears. Over the next year, Richie made about $130,000 fixing quarter horse races. But eventually, people grew suspicious. The quarter horse races simply had too much attention and too many people reviewing replays and studying film. The solution, Richie figured, was to fix fewer races but win more money each time. But to win more money meant one thing. Step up into the big leagues and fix thoroughbred races. The risk, however, would be even greater. Thoroughbred races had much more money bet on them, but that also meant more scrutiny. The penalty for the things Richie and his partners were doing were criminal. They could go to jail. Richie considered the risk versus the reward. Then he asked his jockey if he knew anyone who raced thoroughbreds in California. Now, even though thoroughbred purses were higher and jockeys made more money, they were still earning maybe $1,000 per win. And Richie was offering $4,000 to lose. He called him and he said, he's interested. This was it. Richie had hit the big time. The first thoroughbred race 
that I did something, me and my partner made 555,000 on one race because there's so much more money in the thoroughbred pools. No more newspaper machines, no more flipping quarters, no more holding back cards in pan or haggling for a piece of someone else's ticket. Richie Sklar was big money now. He had arrived. I'm picturing houses, Rolls Royces, and I'm, I'm a fire engine at the time. I'm gonna gamble on everything and, and I'm not worried about losing and I can always win it back. But 90% of the money that I won fixing races, 90% of the money, I came to Vegas and gambled and lost it. Craps and Baccarat, I was just sick. I never saw a show, I never saw a pool. I saw the bed when I couldn't keep my eyes open, casino, bed, casino. Through all of 1988, Richie would hit big on horse races and lose big in Vegas at the casino. For two years, he lived his life on that rubber band. One of the highest rollers in Las Vegas on Saturday broke on Monday. Until he decided in 1990 to give it all up and go straight. Because I was living now in San Diego with, with my new girlfriend. We've to, been together two years. And she says, I'm not going to be around that anymore. And I said, I'm going to stop. But like every good heist movie, after four years of clean living, Richie went back in for one last score. Until 94, where one race at Los Alamitos, there was a big pick six carryover. I called this one jockey who I knew, who was on a big favorite, and said to him, this guy's going to be in front. Give him a couple extra lengths. And if he's good, let him go on and win. I'm going to bet a thousand for you on him. And everyone knows how the one last score thing goes in the movies. Sometime later that year, I was on the phone with a guy I talk about horses with every day. And then I brought up the story. I said, yeah, that's, that's a friend of mine, that jockey. I, I bet on a winner for him on a big pick six carryover a few months ago. And, and uh, we're, we, tried, we helped this other horse win, even though he would have won anyway. We helped make sure that he had a better chance of winning. That friend Richie was on the phone with was being investigated by the FBI for an unrelated case. And just like that, the FBI was on to Richie Sklar. He had the goods. He says, if you don't plead guilty to one count, I'm going to uh, subpoena your girlfriend to the grand jury. Then it's going to really blow up because we're going to find out everything about everything you've done all those years. And a lot of people are going to be in trouble. And I said, okay. He would eventually plead guilty to race fixing, but only did six months. And I got a slap on the hand, but I had to go to jail for six months. But I didn't have to go to a prison. I got to go to a police department, a police department at the beach in Seal Beach. And really, it was really like a vacation. I had a racing form delivered every day. Richie's days of fixing races were over. But his days of betting on them were not. He'd get phone calls from one of his friends who could then connect him with his horse racing clients who were still paying him a percentage of their wins. And then the next morning, I would have him dial three ways to all my clients and tell them what to do each day. And they'd send him the money for me. So then uh, 
It was 98, August 5th of 98. So now I got out, went, drove right to my sister's. She told me I could stay there till I get rolling again. And right away, I said, I'm out, here we go. George! He had that past mine from 15 feet. Back at TPC Summerlin, Richie was still down to the other two teams. But after raising the stakes, his luck was beginning to turn. So I made a, finally made first putt of the day after 11 holes to win the hole from both, play, both teams. It was an easy putt. I mean, even though it was eight feet, it was dead straight in, slightly uphill, pretty level, easy putt. That eight-foot putt won Richie $8,000 pocket change for high-stakes golf gamblers, but still a lot of money to mere mortals like me. I may not be as wealthy as Richie, but I knew he was stuck, something I could relate to. And when winning eight grand just gets you halfway to even, it sure doesn't feel like a lot of money. But the round wasn't over, and Richie's confidence was growing stronger with every hole. Yeah, I was stuck 12 and was four. Now, now I'm stuck eight and even. Now, if I can beat both of them this hole, I'll break even for the day, and I couldn't possibly play worse. Back in 1998, when Richie got out of jail, $8,000 would have been a big help. He didn't have the big bankroll he used to have when he was still flush from fixing races. He was playing in poker games in the card rooms and casinos around Los Angeles, eager to run it up and get back to where he used to be. But without an angle, it was slow going. That is, until he found out poker players around Los Angeles loved to golf. They'd take the gambling from the card table right to the course. And even though it had been more than 20 years since his high school golf days, well, Richie still knew how to work his way around a course. So I just started gambling and I started playing a little golf, which would be 2003. And my game started getting real good right away. As much as I love playing golf, I could care less about the golf bug. I'm only there for one reason, and that's to win money, period. The money was small, 500, 800 might change hands, not much. But then when the Larry Hustler opened and the Larry Flint game came. Larry Flint was the gregarious publisher of Hustler magazine, and he was an avid gambler. For years, he had hosted what was considered to be the highest stakes poker game in the world at his home. But in June of 2000, Flint opened up the Hustler Casino in the L.A. suburb of Gardena, and the game moved there, which meant everybody from two-bit angle shooters to big-shot high rollers flocked to the Hustler Casino to try to get in the big game. Giant money and huge decisions on the table. And then I heard they were, how much money they were playing golf for against each other. 10 and 20,000 a hole they're betting. I said, I gotta get in this group somehow. Richie starts hanging around the Hustler, playing poker and making golf matches with people. One day, he's approached by Ted Forrest, who at that time was considered one of the best poker players in the world and who was a regular player in Larry Flint's big game. Ted heard that Richie had a bet to play golf with a guy named Big Al, someone Ted often gambled with, and he wanted to know what the details of the bet were. I said, I don't know. Someone made it for me. They told me that I can't lose. He says, how much are you playing for? I said, we're playing for uh, 
3,500 Nassau. 3,500 Nassau means three $3,500 bets. One on the first nine holes, one on the back nine holes, and one for the whole game. And they played with a press bet on each side, meaning either team, if they went up by two, could make another $3,500 bet. So five total bets. He says, with Big Al, huh? I said, yeah. He says, I'm going to call Big Al. I'm going to bet 6,000 Nassau more on you which means another 30,000 possibility. He says, and you got half. I said, are you serious? He said, yeah. Ted had a friendly rivalry with Big Al. And even though this was major money for Richie at that time, for Al and Ted, it was peanuts. So I'm saying, oh my God, this could get me in that group. I better play good. I, I need to win this match. Well... We played the toughest course in L.A. from the deepest tees. They're called the Black Tees at Industry Hills at the Ike course. It's so hard, the course record is 71. The pros refuse to play a tournament there. That's how hard it is. The first nine holes, I won six up, and I destroyed him. I shot one over par, which one over on that course for nine holes is great because the course record is one under. I played good. <laughs> I played real good. And, and that was that. And that got me into this group. And Ted kept backing me. Anytime I had a match, Ted said, just do whatever you think is right. I couldn't believe it. There's this guy who has like the most money in the poker world at the time is backing me at golf. And I can bake the match myself and bet as high as the other people will bet, and I won and won and won. He didn't just win. Richie kept improving, too. I'd say after six months, I was scratch. And after a year, I was about a plus three. I said, my God, I, I wasted my life at the track. For Richie Sklar's entire life, he tried to beat the house edge or the racetrack takeout or the poker room rake, playing in games where even the best players had the odds rigged against them. Even a smart guy like Richie had to do something, shoot an angle, pull a move, find some kind of hustle in order to stay to the good, to stay George. And sometimes it wasn't pretty. In fact, sometimes it got Richie real jammed up. But now, out on the golf course, Richie was playing a different kind of game. There was no house edge, Nothing rigged against him. There was just him, his opponents, and a few hundred yards of God's green earth between him and the pin. Out on the golf course, Richie wouldn't need to color outside the lines. Out on the golf course, Richie could win. It's incredible, but here he was, nearly 50 years old, and in six months he went from scratch to plus three. This wasn't an angle, this was a gift. Richie wouldn't need any more angles. He found a straight-up game entirely on the square for the first time in his life, and by God, he was the best. By God, he was going to win. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, 
the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Nice ball. Wow. Right into the water. No, I didn't swing hard enough. Right in the water. I don't think so. I don't know. We'll see. I don't see how it could be. I didn't even splash. splash. Just hit this one. As the After winning $8,000 on the previous hole at TPC Summerlin, Richie was all gassed up to win the next two holes. Then, he left his first drive in the drink. Luckily, since he was scrambling, he got another try. That one's not in the water. <laughs> that one's dry for sure. Normally, I would never hit driver on this hole because the water comes in play. But I'm swinging so easy that I never thought I could reach the water, but I hit it real good for, for swinging easy. It's, it's going to be close. I got to hope it stays short of the water. Really? That went in the water. I'll be a son of a gun. In 2003, Richie Sklar would never have put that ball in the water. He had just turned 50, and he was playing on God mode and full up with confidence. So much confidence, in fact, that he decided he was good enough to try to make the PGA Senior Tour. One Monday that year, he flew to Pensacola, Florida to play in a qualifier for that weekend's PGA event. And he found himself on the last hole in a five-way playoff for the final qualifying spot. If I win, I get to go on the PGA Tour and play in a real tournament. I might get noticed. And who knows if I'll pick up a sponsor. It's a chance. Richie is set to tee off last. The first guy hooks it into the trees and the next three all land short of where Richie knew he could hit it. I hit it about 310 dead center. I'm 50 yards in front of the farthest drive. The guy in the weeds, however, miraculously hits it out of the trees and leaves it a foot from the hole. I just can't even believe what I'm seeing. So he's got a, a he's gonna make birdie for sure. I have to make birdie to tie. And now it's my turn. I have a 125 or 126 yard wedge, dead straight, the pin's in the middle. I hit it right at the pin. I'm about 18 feet from the pin and I putt it. It was never going in. I hit it about six inches left of the hole. He has a tap and birdie. I'm on the plane back home and I can't even breathe. Richie tried five more times to qualify but all the travel was wearing on him. It was hard work, and it was money out of his pocket he couldn't get back. What was the point of all that when he could be earning money on his home golf course gambling? So he gives up on the senior PGA tour, and he goes back to gambling in L.A. Some part of him may have still felt a twinge of disappointment that he missed out on qualifying for the tour because some other guy had a lucky break with a miracle shot from the trees. But that miracle shot would turn out to be a miracle for Richie. Because if he had made the tour, chances are he wouldn't have been in the Commerce Casino during the 2006 L.A. Poker Classic. And if he hadn't been there, well, he would have missed his own lucky break. I'm talking to the 
floor man to saying hi. All of a sudden I hear this Richie, Richie, and I go up, turn around, and about 30 feet away, I see Mike Sexton. Mike Sexton, who many people today know as the host of the World Poker Tour, was a longtime successful professional poker player since the early 1980s. Mike helped start one of the first ever online poker sites, PartyPoker.com. And in 2006, when Richie bumped into him, Mike had just sold his shares of Party Poker for $15 million. So he was flush. And he was looking for action. So I walk over, he says, have you been playing? I said, yeah, playing every day. He says, how are you playing? I said, I'm playing real, real good. I'm like a plus three now. He said, I wanted to hear you say it. He said, but that's what I've, I've heard. Mike and Richie play a $5,000 Nassau against two other players, and they end up winning $20,000. Mike gives Richie his $10,000 and starts to make his way to the airport to fly back to Las Vegas. But Richie sees his opportunity, and he grabs it. And I said, uh, listen, I need to get in those big, giant games that you play in, in Vegas. Either scramble games with you or caddy for you or make games against guys and you put up the money for me. I said, what are your plans? He says, well, I'm going home to Vegas now. He says, what are your plans? I said, I'm tying my car to your bumper. <laughs> and he said, let's go. And just like that, Richie Sklar got Mike Sexton to back him. It's just too much trouble from 235. I had to hit it just where I'm not out of the hole. On the next hole, he offered a side bet, an extra $2,000 to whoever sank a putt that the other missed. Oh, here we go, last putt. This is for 6,000, this putt. Four four on the hole and two on the side bet. Oh, Richie on the comeback. (laughs) So I won 6,000 from them on the hole. Now I'm down only 2,000 of them, and I'm down 4,000 the other team. You guys got hustled, man. <laughs> All this trick in the book, man, he just dogged it on you. Richie was no stranger to dogging it to win a bet, though. In fact, prior to meeting Mike Sexton, it was kind of his M.O. He'd lay back, not show all his strength when he played, so that he could keep someone around trying to beat him over the long haul. After his game with Mike, he packed his bags and moved to Las Vegas the very next day, checking into the Rio Hotel with no checkout date. His intention was to stay in Las Vegas for as long as he could, finding suckers and gilding the lily by showing them only enough of his skill to barely win, or maybe even barely lose, depending on how he sized up the score. And the scores would come fast. On his second day in town, Mike called Richie up. He says, we have a game today. He says, do you know Phil Ivey? I said, of course. Phil Ivey, in case you've lived under a rock for 15 years, is the most popular gambler in the world. In 2006, he was at the peak of his powers, coming off the best year of his professional life with over $7 million in tournament wins and was part owner of Full Tilt Poker, which paid him nearly a million dollars a month. Phil loved to gamble, and he loved to play golf. He had even been known to gamble on the golf course with Michael Jordan. And Phil wanted a game with Mike Sexton. Phil playing with his stick, a former NBA point guard named Matt Othick, who was an excellent golfer and Mike with Richie. Matt and Richie from the back tees, and Phil and Mike from the front. The game would be at Shadow Creek, 
an ultra-exclusive private course built by Steve Wynn and later bought by MGM for the exclusive use of their high rollers and VIPs. Richie had heard many stories about Shadow Creek, but he had yet to play there. This was a major opportunity. And like a true hustler, Richie wanted to play the long game. He wanted to lay back, sandbag a little to keep Ivy interested. Like the saying goes, you can shear a sheep many times, but you can skin him only once. I said, well, listen, I want to keep Phil Ivy around because he bets high, so I don't want to show him too much of my game. He's never seen me play. I said, I, I don't care if we break even, Mike, or even lose a bet. Let me handle it. Don't worry about how I play. I know what I'm doing. So I'm thinking we're playing for 5,000 Nassau. That's just in my mind. I'm warming up on the practice tee. He drives his cart all the way on the tee real fast. I'm saying, what's going on? He comes up to me and says, you're going to have to try hard every hole. Forget about trying to keep you. I said, why? He says, because we're playing for 40000 a hole. Of course, if the sheep is worth $720,000, hell, you might as well go ahead and skin it. The first hole is a dogleg left par four with water all up the left side and around the dogleg. If you go left, you're in the water. The game was simple. Win a hole, win 40 grand. If you tie, that hole is a push and you go to the next hole. No skins, no jackpot. Just a very high-stakes grind. Mike hits it, no good. Phil hits it, no good. Matt hits it from the trees all the way to the back of the green, 80 feet away. Now I hit it three feet away. A wedge three feet from the hole. And I'm saying, oh my God. If I hope that I don't even have to putt. I'm hoping that his 80-footer is so bad that he has to putt again and misses and makes five and they just give me the putt because it doesn't matter. He puts the 80-footer in the leather about a foot away for his four. I've never had a putt for 40,000 before. For one hole, I make the putt. It's over 40,000 ahead. So the next hole is a long par four. Again, I hit a perfect drive up the left center. Phil hits his shot about 20 feet from the hole for birdie. I have a wedge left, about a 130-yard wedge to a pin that's in an easy right center spot, and I hook it horribly off the green left, up this embankment, I'm dying. The pin is about 70 feet away with a giant break from left to right, the way the green is shaped. And I'm not good at chipping, especially on a downhill. I put it down this embankment. It's in line with the hole. And I'm hoping it just gets within three or four feet. I'll be happy. And it's going, 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 and it goes in the hole. It went in. It's impossible. And Mike yells out, that's my bad. And when a guy with 32 new million dollars who loves to gamble and he's your backer, brand new backer yells out, that's my man. 
you're in good shape. All told, Mike and Richie won $240,000 from Phil Ivey. Phil paid him in chips. We went back to the Bellagio. Mike went to his box in the poker room and he opened up this box. It was the most beautiful sight I've ever seen and I've been gambling now for 36 years. It had a rack of pink chips in it, which are 25,000. That's two and a half million. It had a rack of white chips in it, which is $5,000 chips, that's 500,000. And packages of cash, of 50,000 packets and other chips. It was the most gorgeous looking thing. And I'm standing there and he pulls out 120 and he said, here's yours. And I put it in my pocket. (laughs) I said, thank you to him, of course. And I said, when's our next match? There would be more matches, nearly every day for the next year and a half. Sometimes at Shadow Creek, sometimes at TPC Summerlin, sometimes for $20,000 a hole, sometimes for $40,000 a hole. These were the halcyon days of the poker boom, and newly minted millionaires from all over the world were arriving in Las Vegas at a rapid clip. The city was awash in poker money, with stakes being pushed higher and higher, and the action moved from the card rooms to the golf courses and back. And this guy's putting up essentially a half a million dollars every day for me to play golf at 40000 a hole. I can do anything he needs done and show him that he can rely on me. I didn't gamble on anything else. I didn't bet on horses. I either played golf or practiced. Because how many chances do you think you're going to have with a guy with that kind of money to keep backing you? These days, Richie no longer swears off all other forms of gambling. Just like most of us, he plays in a weekly poker game. Hey, me, Richie. Huh? We're in the Bellagio poker room in the Legends Room, which used to be known as Bobby's Room, named after Bobby Baldwin, the poker player turned casino executive who Richie used to play golf with. But the high-stakes poker pros who play regularly in here simply call it The Office. This room is reserved for the highest stakes games, and it's often host to some larger-than-life gamblers. Today's no exception. This is Richie's weekly game, Chinese poker, $200 a point with royalties. This game comes together nearly every week, often at Richie's house, but sometimes here at the Bellagio. And the group that plays includes Elia Lezra and Doyle Brunson, a living legend in the gambling world who is still in action at the highest levels at the age of 88. And of course, Richie, who is sitting with about $100,000 in front of him, telling stories of the days when he used to play Doyle and the other poker pros out on the golf course. Doyle was too smart. He didn't play against me too often. It was Doyle's henchmen that tried to beat me. Dewey Tomko and all those guys. Everybody's down? Enjoy it, boys. Straight. Deuce it in front. Doyle, you scoop? I did scoop. After Mike Sexton started backing Richie, the two of them played nearly every day in what were likely the most expensive golf matches in Las Vegas history. They played anyone who wanted to gamble high, which included most of the poker aristocracy, as well as a lot of the rich and famous who happened to blow through town. Uh, Sean Connery. 
in L.A. at Bel Air Country Club. Jerry Buss was a close friend of mine, owner of the Lakers. When Kobe was 18, Jerry brought Kobe out just to hang out and watch me and Jerry West play one day. Played with Michael Jordan twice. Played, people I played mostly against was uh, Bobby Baldwin, Phil Ivey. Doyle used to play. We used to have special rules for Doyle. Doyle, no matter where he hit it, could move the ball to the closest flat ground because he he's on crutches and he drops the crutches, hits, and someone pick, caddy picks him back up for him and, and he uses them. And any sand trap he was in, he would get to drop out of the sand trap to the closest flat ground. That was called Doyle's Rules. For a year and a half, Richie took on all comers, and he kept winning. Some of this newly rich generation of gamblers, like poker players Daniel Negreanu or Phil Ivey, were finding themselves on the golf course more and more, so they hired swing coaches to help them get better. Other gamblers just went out and found their own ringers to put up against Richie. But it never worked out quite like they wanted it to. A pro in town here who's a real good player. When I first came to town, uh, two guys I know said, we got a match for you. And it was for only $5,000 total for the 18 holes. So we played at Spanish Trails Country Club and they were trying to rob me out of 5,000. So I was three holes down after seven holes. And I was sick because I, I wanted to beat him because he's a pro. Eight holes later, I overcame the three and I was putting for a birdie on the 15th hole from about eight feet where he already made par. So before I putted, I said, you guys want to make a settlement? They offered 2,500 for me to win and I just pick up and the game's over and I took it. I took it for the reason, not I was afraid to lose, but I wanted to say I beat him. <laughs> That's why I took it. Richie beat the PGA pro and everybody else that came through Vegas. In the old days, Richie was the ringer, the unknown guy that people brought along to try to hustle someone else. But he had become the guy that people were trying to hustle, and he relished it. In fact, before long, the hustler in Richie started to recede. And when those old friends came calling, trying to get him to help them hustle others, Richie declined, even if the mark was Phil Mickelson himself. And I was invited to come play, and this guy that, that played him said, he gives me eight a side, and I used to give this guy like one and a half a side. So this guy was a pretty decent player, real decent. So he says, I'll get him to give you six and a half a side. I said, six and a half a side? Are you kidding? This is when I was in, in playing real good. Uh, like at, at my peak, like about a plus three, maybe a plus two. So I said, no, no, I, I don't want to play against him. And I'll hit a 320 down the middle on the first hole, and he'll start screaming at me. No, I'm not doing that. I don't care about trying to win ten or 20000 from Phil Mickelson and embarrassing myself like I'm hustling him. I'm not interested. Thank you for inviting me. What could I win? $20,000? I, I mean, not that that's not a lot of money. It is a lot to most people, but I didn't want to 
I didn't want him spreading my name around that I came and robbed him. Over the course of Richie and Mike's first year and a half together in Vegas, they won $5 million. In the history of Las Vegas golf hustlers, Richie says he may or may not be the best golfer. Who could know? But he doesn't think anyone has come close to winning that much money out on the links. I earned it. And I've never screwed up yet. But that doesn't mean I won't. It, you, when you're a gambler, you never know. Money doesn't last forever. The money didn't last forever. At least, not on the golf courses of Las Vegas. First, the financial crisis hit the United States. And then the Department of Justice went after online poker sites. And they, in turn, shuttered or abandoned the U.S. market. The U.S. Department of Justice just announced major restrictions to online gambling. In a new opinion, By 2012, the poker scene had contracted considerably in the United States. The poker pros who were sponsored or owned their own online poker sites were no longer getting an influx of hundreds of thousands of dollars a month to gamble with. Then it slowly ran out, these people, when they shut, shut them down, and it slowly ran out. As hard times set in across Nevada, Richie slowed down. Not necessarily by choice, but the action just wasn't like it used to be. Yeah, because everybody gambled high and, and all that money wasn't coming in, so that dried up in the golf world. So instead of 40,000 hole, we're playing 1,000 and 2,000 hole, which is still okay. And I established myself in this town and, and became very well respected and trusted by the highest echelon gamblers. And you're in that group, so to say. Your word is good. You're in good shape in this town. Mike continued to back Richie. And though the golf games were for considerably less money, they stayed in action. And Richie continued to gamble on golf for a living. From January of 06 to September 6, 2020, when he passed away. Very close friends. Mike Sexton was one of the few people in the poker world, one rife with jealousies, rivalries, and egos, who was respected and loved by everyone he met. The fact that he vouched for Richie for so many years was no small thing. His approval made a difference, both to those who met Richie and to Richie himself. Mike passed away from prostate cancer in September of 2020 at the age of 72. And now, Richie is all on his own. I only want to stay here for 31 more years. I'll be 100. That's, I'm going to live till I'm 100 in this town. Who knows what I'll do at 100. But I'll be playing golf when I'm 90. The wind has blown Richie Sklar in all sorts of directions over the years. There were times when it was blowing him in the wrong direction, towards deception, towards transgression. But that wind changed direction. Today, he's a wholly different man, an older, perhaps wiser man, an honest man, and he's not interested in letting the wind blow him backwards. Richie Sklar is 69 years old, more than a few years from his prime, but he's still swinging. That's what's great about golf. You can be older, banged up, on crutches. It doesn't matter. Anybody can match up given the right spot. And today, given everything, Richie is far more than just game. He's still good, very good. And he's still taking on all comers. No matter if they're younger and stronger, or if he happens to be injured, or if the wind is blowing hard enough to push a perfect dead center putt away from the cup. If the money's right and the game is fair, 
Richie Sklar will still meet you out on the golf course. I love Richie. Richie's the best. Nothing. He says you guys would never, he says you'd never take this game if he wasn't injured. That's true. Yeah? That's true. 100% true. He's way too good. But I'll play, I'll tell you this, I'll play the same game tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And the next day, and the next day. day. Until he's healed. Richie, same game tomorrow? No. No. Just give him a day to rest up. I, I want to win, but if I break even the rest of my life, it'll be fine. It's a good but, feeling. But I won't. I'll, I'll come out ahead, no matter. It, impossible I won't come out ahead the rest of my life. Not today, though. Next week, we get hustled by some chess players in Chicago, Illinois. The hustler is the bad boy of chess. The person who takes his skill and directly applies it as a livelihood. Just like every other pro, poker, backgammon, golf, there is the professional, and then there's the hustler. They're two different people. Gamblers was written and reported by me, David Hill. The show's executive producers are Juliet Littman and Sean Finnessy. Gamblers was produced by Bobby Wagner, Mike Wargon, Noah Malale, and Vikram Patel. Matt Dollinger was our story editor. Fact-checking by Daniel Comer. Copy editing by Isaac Levy-Rubinet. Sound design by Bobby Wagner. Mixing and mastering by Scott Somerville. The theme song was written by Isaac Lee. Other tracks you hear in this episode are from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker. And special thanks to Jade Whaley. Thanks for listening.